This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome back. This is Chaylin. Today is November 9th, and if humanity is just cruising through a climate crisis, like nothing's happening, and it's Friday, then this is The Delve. On November 20th, the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, well, that's a mouthful, aka COP27, they wrapped up a two-week event. Delegates from governments around the world joined fossil fuel lobbyists to jostle each other away from definitive action to avert the impending climate catastrophe. This COP, the world's 27th, largely did what every preceding COP has done, kicked the proverbial can down the road. Maybe I'm being a little too harsh, but the reality is that with each passing year and each passing COP, our carbon emissions have only increased. We are careening off a cliff. UN scientists are warning we are on course for devastating changes to our climate. And the head of the UN called out... Extreme temperatures, wildfires, drought and flooding have all been made worse by the last eight years being the hottest on record, according to the World Meteorological... Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. Floods displaced more than a million people in Nigeria last month while another year of low rainfall pushed parts of Somalia and elsewhere in East Africa even closer to famine. Our planet is sending a distress signal. The UN conference in Egypt was warned. I wanted to talk to someone who was attempting to make real change. Al Gore wouldn't take my calls, but Sonny Morgan is an incredible climate activist from South Africa. He was actually trained by the former vice president in climate communications and is a member of many climate activist groups, including Debt for Climate, his own initiative that we will dive into later. Sonny, thank you so much for coming on The Delve. I am so excited to have you on today. Before we jump in, I want to hear a little bit about how you got involved in climate activism and why you made this your life's work. And that's a really interesting question. I, no one's asked it before about the connection. So uh. um, I'm I'm 58 years old and uh, I'm based in South Africa. So and I'm a person of color. So I became a climate activist to make a difference because when you're fighting apartheid, you wanted to make a difference. When you're fighting anti-corruption, you wanted to make a difference. And yeah. those things were important. But the climate crisis is um, is so much more vast. Uh, that it poses an existential risk to humanity. You know, you can't underplay the fact that if we don't get this right, we may we may be party to our own extinction over a hundred years. And I can't live in a world where I know I'm living on my last breath. You know, uh, 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 speaking in terms of the decade long or the ten decades that we have in our timeline. You know, so I want to be able to say, listen, you know, we need to be able to do something about this because. Great impacts are sometime in the future. We're already in Africa suffering some of the impacts, but the really, really uh, dangerous and existential uh, threats are going to come within a decade or two, or maybe at least three. But, you know, as long as I still have threat in me, I want to do something so that at least we can plant the seed of change, uh, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in China or Latin America, wherever. We need a lot more people like you and I 
to be talking about this, to be sharing it, and to be appealing to people through sane, logical arguments, scientific-based arguments, moral-based arguments, uh, to be able to say to people, listen, you know, how are you going to talk to somebody from 2050, your grandchild uh, or your great-grandchild, and say, listen, you know, we had a chance to do this uh, in 2022, uh, but we didn't do it. Uh, we have to be doing it. They say that this is the second best time to do anything about the climate crisis. The first best time uh, was 30 years ago. You actually just came back from uh, the Conference of Parties or COP27 in Egypt, where, I mean, I would think that you were around a lot of like-minded people uh, who are recognizing the significance of climate change, but perhaps it wasn't all just like-minded people. What was this conference like? So this conference was, first of all, on one level, very much like the other 26 that preceded it, right? Uh, it's very technical, it's, um, it's very structured, and uh, it's, it's about politicians, uh, it's about states, and it's about influence. So in that sense, it's much of a muchness to the other 26 that, that has happened before. And uh, if, I, if I have to be unkind, then I'd say it was a talk shop. That's all it is. Oh, wow. It's moving, it's moving heads and moving lips that talk a lot, but they have no real uh, intent. And I'm going to say this harshly because that's my... That's my duty as a climate communicator and a yeah. climate justice activist. There was no justice in what they were discussing. In fact, what should actually happen is every COP should be better than the previous one. Okay, we should we should we should do better than the previous one. Uh, we should aim much higher. We should have ambition. This COP yeah. uh, failed in that sense. Uh, it failed to recognize the urgency of the problem. It did not address the issue of emissions in any meaningful way. You know, there was a big challenge in COP26 in Glasgow, uh, where in the very, very dying hours of the uh, negotiations, there's a sentence that, uh, and I paraphrase it as best I can, there was a sentence or a, or, or a demand to phase out coal, right? And after much haggling and much negotiation by politicians and lobbyists and whatever, they gave us a watered-down version of that, and it changed the word from out to down. Instead of saying phase out coal, it said phase down coal, uh-huh. which was like a big difference in the meaning, but at, right. least, at least we understood there was this recognition. So that was like a, I'm going to say, a win that we could build on in COP27. None of that happened. So there were over 700 oil and gas slash fossil fuel executives slash lobbyists wow. at COP. They collectively as an industry, oil and gas slash uh, 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 fossil fuel executives outnumbered some of the delegations. In fact, outnumbered most of the country delegations that got to COP. One initiative to come out of COP27 that got a lot of press is the Loss and Damage Fund. I'm sure you've heard of it. Let's review. There is the consolation, though, of a breakthrough on a fund for loss and damage to poor countries that have done little to cause the climate crisis but are suffering most from the impacts. 
So how might a loss and damage fund work? Well, rich countries like the UK, EU, United States and others would put money in the tin and it would pay out to poorer countries like Pakistan or island states like the Maldives who could be submerged by rising sea levels. But arguments remain over countries still officially classed as developing despite having comparative wealth like China, currently the world's biggest greenhouse gas polluter, and the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia that are major sources of fossil fuels. Whether they put money in won't be decided until next year's climate conference. It was very important that this fund was established. You know, as I say, developing countries have been calling for this for 30 years. There has been these uh, talks are, you know, beleaguered by a lack of trust across the board, not least because developed countries have promised finance again and again and again, and they haven't delivered on that finance. This effort doesn't mitigate the climate crisis, but it does alleviate the economic pressure on countries that have contributed minimal carbon emissions, but will be facing the most consequences of climate change. Pakistan, the Horn of Africa, and island nations are just a few of the places where we can already see the impact of global warming with flooding, rising sea levels, drought, crop failure, wildfires, and more. I asked Sunny for his thoughts on the loss and damage fund and what is his call to action for all of us. Loss and damage was first mentioned in the COP 30 years ago, right? In, 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 in the agreements 30 years ago. So that's how long it's taken us. So we, we don't have 30 months, right, for uh, left for that uh, uh, loss and damage fund to really be fully funded. I gave a speech at the Debt for Climate Action in COP, and I said, because what had happened is in the first one or two days, some countries made their loss and damage pledges, right? Yeah. And Scotland made a pledge of five million. Five million. Um, million with the M, right? A small okay. M, by the yeah. way, right? Five, five million pounds. Right. Followed by New Zealand, who gave us the equivalent of 20 million dollars, right? So in context, that... 5 million would not pay in South Africa for the road that was washed away in the last climate, wow. uh, climate-induced flood we had in wow. May or April of this year. The 5 million would not pay to repair or rebuild just the roads that were washed away, right? So in that sense, 5 million pounds is pocket change. We don't need... Uh, 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 50 billion uh, US dollars. We don't need 500 billion dollars. Uh, Vice President Al Gore, in his opening speech on the first day, in fact, one of the first two speeches on the first day, also said that we should make sure that when we, when this COP is done, when it's over, that we recognize that the 50 billion will just be a drop in the ocean. Right. No. So, so when we when we talk, we must cautiously celebrate the fact that loss and damage is now a very very serious component of climate negotiations uh, and and all agreements going forward. So, in COP twenty eighteen in the United Arab Emirates uh, next year, we must build on that. But it mustn't be to talk about definitions and formats. It's to say, listen, here's the deposit. We now can report that this is funded to the tune of hundreds of billions of US dollars. 
Yeah. That's what we must be talking about. So when I gave that protest speech, I said, we do not want people to be thinking that they can give us pocket change. They need to give us serious money. They need to fund that seriously so that the injustices of the climate crisis. So depending on who you talk to, right? We talk about Africa as an example. So some people say the figure is as low as 1% and some people say uh, it's as high as 4%. So let's use the higher figure just to be fair, right? Well, just to be to 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 to, to give us a, a a a practical example, Africa is responsible for less than four percent of global emissions. Less than four percent. The entire of continent. Emissions. The entire continent. Wow. Okay. Right. Okay. Of fifty-four countries. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is less is responsible less than four percent of global emissions, but will suffer. of its effects, mass migration, sea level rise, ocean acidification, deforestation, crop failure, failure, all of these things, we're already beginning to suffer. Now, I'm going to give you a fact. There are certain countries like Sierra Leone, Gabon, some of the smaller African countries, right? Now, listen to this. A standard American refrigerator in one year uses more energy than a person from Sierra Leone for the whole year. Wow. One fridge. Think about it. Just one fridge. (laughs) Just one fridge. One fridge. One fridge in a a standard American household is consuming more power than a whole human being in a country in Africa. Wow. Wow. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Right? So not only are we talking about the refrigerator or the 4%, we're going to rather say it in this emotive language. I say the people least responsible for the climate crisis will suffer the greatest impact. That's not justice. That's a global injustice. That's an injustice perpetuated and perpetrated against the global South by the global North, the rich nations of the world. And we have to hold them accountable through uh, the kind of protests that we hold, the kind of movements that we build. And we have to hold them accountable because they cannot speak about the just transition, about justice, and about fairness if they are responsible for the climate crisis. You know, a lot of global North leaders came and on the subject of mitigation, scolded the global South and African countries for not doing enough around mitigation. How dare they? How dare <laughs> as, as they? As if that burden is, is on you guys. It's ours. Yeah. If as if that burden is ours. Yeah. No. That burden. Uh, so I saw a tweet and somebody said, you know, one of, probably a climate denier saying, do you know that 783 private jets uh, arrived at, uh, at COP so they could tell so that just to lecture us that we should use bicycles. <laughs> so you know, I you know what I responded, um, I, because th- this person as a climate denier was trying to talk about the hypocrisy of the of, of the process. Yeah. But you know what I said? Actually, all those in the private jets came to tell us not to use bicycles because they make more profit out of oil and gas. They want us to use private jets. They want us to use uh, 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 automobiles. They want us to use uh, petrol and diesel, right? They don't want us to actually use bicycles. 
So that's the real hypocrisy. They came to lecture us uh, that we're not doing enough. But at the same time, they want us to be perpetually indebted uh, to oil and gas. They want to give us loans so we can explore for oil and gas. They want to fund us so we can extract for oil and gas. They want to make sure that this um, industry that benefits uh, from subsidies uh, on a daily basis and that makes profits of billions and billions and billions a month um, it just carries on into for another hundred years. They yeah. came there to protect the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah. Uh, and I, and, I, and we, need, we need to stop that. I think it's really, really interesting that you refer to to this conference as, uh, you know, uh, kind of like a trade show for oil, gas, and fossil fuel companies. Were they, you know, I guess doing presentations about how much more cleaner they can make gas and how, or were they just talking about things that they could do to, you know, I guess protect their industry but make it cleaner and safer for the environment? I don't even think the the narrative and the messaging uh, was, was even like that and safer. No, yeah. no, that would still be that Jesus. would mean they're beginning to think they would yeah. just more of this, more of this, more of this. I would I would venture to say that their presence there influenced the outcome. I'll give you an example because because you must talk about facts and you must talk. So the South African Pavilion at COP. I did a video there uh, 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 on the very first day when it was all still in pristine condition and unused. So it just opened. Officially, it opened on on the Monday with all of the activities. So we went to go and visit on the Sunday. Uh, And I went to the South African Pavilion. And there's a big big, um, big poster on the side of the wall that said, proudly sponsored by... And when I looked at the names, it was all the fossil fuel companies and some of the biggest polluters on the African continent um, and, and, and fossil fuel companies or their enablers. So the banks that wow. enable, the banks that enable fossil fuels, the mining houses that extract and, and, and the companies that sell it. There was a coal company, uh, two or three coal companies, two or three banks that are, uh, that are funding the East African crude oil pipeline, ECOP. There was the largest polluter in terms of fossil fuels, in terms of uh, uh, flaring gas. Uh, and that's just the South African pavilion. Uh, in general, Coca-Cola, the biggest plastic polluter on the planet, wow. billions of bottles a day, right? They were the main lead, one of the main lead sponsors of the, of the COP in general. So, so it's lip service to protecting the environment, and, uh, and moving us uh, sustainably uh, to, uh, to 1.5 degrees. Yeah. 1.5 degrees died at the COP. You know, um, wow. in the Secretary General's speech, he said, we are motoring down the highway towards climate catastrophe with our foot firmly on the accelerator. So, you know, the narrative and the imagery, it's automobiles, it's petrol, it's diesel, it's fuel, right? So, so absolutely true. There was no intent, first of all, to stop hurtling down the highway. There was no intent to take our foot off the accelerator. And that's the reality of this COP. So I personally, and a lot of, quite a few climate activists share my, uh, 
by pessimism that I think 1.5 died at COP27. Wow. We had heard, and I'm going to say rumors, because, you know, you, 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 we, we are civil society representatives. We, were, we had observer status to some of the negotiations and some of the discussions, but the deep negotiations were, were not for, for observers. So your level, your level of, uh, of status allowed you into certain things. But we obviously had a lot of people who were talking to the negotiators, who were talking to the delegations, who had access to some of the key people. And, and a rumor started to circulate uh, in the halls during COP in the first week already that said there are some official delegations that want to change 1.5 to 2 degrees because they wanted to work with the notion that, you know, we already know that 1.5 degrees is unattainable, right? Um, and, and, and let's begin to talk about language. Uh, around two degrees. Now, this is the reality of even if that was a rumor, right? Yeah. This is really, in essence, what happened is, is a lot of those negotiators, a lot of those individuals recognizing that, um, that 1.5, and, and, and a lot of people say it, it's a target. It's actually not a target, it's a limit. I read this, uh, I heard this during the COP. You know, we should reframe what we say. 1.5 degrees is not a target, it's a limit. We shouldn't be talking about this thing as it's aspirational. We should talk about it right. in its negative uh, context. It's the limit we can't exceed. It's the limit we can't exceed. That's the ceiling, not the floor. Are, are these conferences, are they useless endeavors? I mean, and if they are, where, where can you go from here? How do you, yeah. you know, create action? So, so as an activist, right, as, a, as, a, as an activist, I'm going to say it's useless because it's our, we will soon have our 30th iteration of it, right? In three, four years, we, we reach COP30, wow. right? Yeah. We'll still be talking about this. We'll still be talking about uh, definitions. Um, for, so it's not fit for purpose. You know what? When a patient is in code red in the hospital, you don't call a board meeting yeah. to have a discussion, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you call the emergency guy with a defibrillator to shock the patient into um, life into him, right? You, you inject whatever is necessary into this patient to save this patient. So, yeah. so we, we, we constantly uh, have a patient on life support. That's, the, that's humanity. Uh, that's the climate crisis. It's in the emergency room. Uh, uh, and the people in charge uh, are sitting in a boardroom to t talking about, you know, about the funding and talking about what's the definition. I, I mean, of, it, uh, it, it just ridiculous. seems they, it seems like they don't find it to be an emergency, which is probably the scariest part of it. Um, yeah. So yeah. So 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 the negotiators and the people uh, who are who, who, who we entrust to do this, right? They all the, they also fathers and mothers and husbands and grandfathers and grandmoms, right? And they're also community leaders. So I, I, I can't understand what connection we must make for them to take it seriously. But also, we need to be aware that sometimes the choices we have made for people to represent us and talk on our behalf 
are the wrong people. I'll give you an example with mm. the World Bank president, uh, David Malpas, mm. right? In that infamous New York interview, when they asked him, are you a climate denier? Or do you believe in climate? They asked him, do you believe in climate, uh, yeah. climate change? And the standard response should have been, yes, I'm the head of a global organization. We are impacted and we, and we, and we work in this arena. Of course, I know what climate change is and here's what it is. And he give a scientific definition. This is, however, the head of one of the most important institutions on the planet. Sure, and he says, yeah. well, you know, you know uh, his, 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 his response was standard climate denialism. We have him at, at, at the head of the table talking about climate finance, talking about climate mitigation, talking about climate, uh, the financing of, of pro, pro, uh, uh, projects around the world. So, so, so you're going to easily convince him to, to, to fund your, your coal mine or your coal power station, right? Because 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 he's not going to be the person that's going to say, hey, but what is the climate impact of this project? And should <laughs> yeah, we he's be not asking it? those questions. <laughs> he's not asking those questions, right? That's just one example. So how yeah. many other David Malpasses are there? Oh, sure, in right. Critical positions because just uh, backtrack one president before your current one, right? And you you have an answer there, right? And you must remember yeah. that uh, Malpass was appointed by Trump. Yeah. So, 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 how many people do we have in critical positions that we have given the mandate to save us, save us, save us? But they're the wrong people. So that onus rests on us as a civil society and on as an activists. And how much more leeway will we give to the fossil fuel companies? What would be your call to action for our listeners? I, I guess this is kind of it. You know, finding out who are the main polluters, uh, who are kind of like the financial backers, like you said, hitting them, yeah. uh, you know, at their bottom line, that's going to get them to change yeah. their behavior. The climate crisis is is on our doorstep. It's very real. It's very, yeah. we, we are suffering. It's through, here. Right? Yeah. It's absolutely here. It's not some future right. event. Yeah. Right? The climate impacts are already here and we have to do something. So here's yeah. the call to action for a number of different categories of listeners, right? And it would be if I was talking to a crowd in Johannesburg, South Africa, or yeah. talking to somebody in Manila or talking to somebody uh, in Argentina. It's mm. exactly the same, right? So um, join the climate movement in your space of influence. Where do you have influence? Where do you have privilege? If you're in church, talk to your pastor, talk to your rabbi, talk to your molana, talk to your imam about this issue. So you can you can do it in your place of worship. You can do it in your school to talk about the climate crisis. We don't still have uh, uh, subjects that are taught. Curricula, ne curriculums need to be rejigged so that we can be talking about the impacts of the climate crisis, right? We must be uh, talking to students in academic spaces uh, in schools, colleges, and universities. We must be talking in our places of worship. But we must be talking on the factory floors. There's a lot of people who, who, who belong to workers' unions, trade organizations. We need to be talking to them uh, and saying, are your pension funds invested in the fossil fuel industry? Mm. Just like we at, at, at universities, we call for Harvard and Stanford and the Ivy League universities and even the community colleges do not invest in fossil fuels, uh, hold investments in fossil fuels. Don't buy their stocks and their shares. 
We need to be talking about that and simply uh, organize yourselves in your, in, your, in your area of influence. The, another thing you can do is to join climate movements, join the Sunrise Movement, join uh, Greenpeace, uh, join Extinction Rebellion, join uh, oil, not, uh, oil Not Gas or Just Stop Oil. Wherever you are, we, you say you, your, 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 your podcast goes to 40 different countries, listeners from around the world. So research which organizations are fighting for climate justice in your place of residence or work or worship. And if you can't find one, then start one. Even if you just four or five people that get together, get that. together yeah. over a Zoom call and you ask somebody else who you know, like me, like you, all around the world, you can invite yeah. us to talk at your event. Because now, because of uh, connectivity uh, 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 and Zoom and, uh, and, and Teams and Google Meet, whatever your preferred platform is, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to travel to the same place. We can talk about it. Another yeah. way, you know what was so hard for, 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 it was, this was an African cop, right? Held in Egypt, right? But one of the biggest challenges was for people from the global South, whether they were in Africa, whether they were in Latin America, whether they were in the Philippines, Manila, wherever they were, or indigenous people from First Nation countries, First Nation people, they struggled to get to the COP because they couldn't get accreditation. They couldn't pay for an airline ticket. I'm relatively okay, a middle class. I couldn't afford, and I had to sleep in a room with four other people sharing a hotel room. In, in nine days that I was there, I only uh, ate a decent meal twice. When I say a decent meal, I mean a full meal, a full plate of wow, food. Yeah. The rest of the time, we couldn't afford it. So one of the things you can do from your position of privilege, or if you have the funds, is to do what the Extinction Rebellion activists in, um, in Washington, D.C. did. They collected 400 U.S. dollars and sent it to us. I, I so, love that. So yeah. You partner, you partner with activists in the global south. Find an activist or a movement in your area in Philly and say, I found someone in Soweto, or I found someone in Argentina, or I found someone in uh, Buenos Aires, and partner with them and say, listen, uh, we're going to send you some funds uh, uh, for your activity. It costs us money to print. It costs us money to make posters. It costs yeah. us money to travel, right? So these are simple, concrete things. But I always, when people ask me what's the call to action, I mm. always end with this by saying, don't forget who is to blame for the, uh, for the climate crisis. So don't apportion to yourself or to others like you the blame. The blame yeah. is the fossil fuel industry. Help activists around the world. Talk in your spaces, but don't lose focus that your energy must also be applied to calling out the fossil fuel industry because they are the biggest threat to our continued existence. Now that is with all its implications. So what do we do in the meantime? Um, how do we travel? How do we power industry? Uh, because we still need to power it with uh, fossil fuels. All of those are valid conversations to have and valid arguments to be able to address. But don't still forget that they, in their continued existence, their continued support and their continued extraction and production, 
production and generation wants the fossil fuel industry to live for another 100 years. So do all of those things. I'm 58 years old. I should be looking forward to a nice quiet retirement somewhere. But I lose, lost my voice within four days of having been in that because I was screaming and shouting. <laughs> climate justice, climate justice, climate justice. Yeah. Right? We need young people to do that. You know what? One of, one of the common things that people ask me after, at the end of a, uh, one of the sessions every day, because we did different actions every day. Yeah. At the end of every action, a young person would come up to me and say, Uncle, where do you get the energy from? <laughs> and you know what's my answer? You know what's what, my answer? It's, what's it's, it's, not, it's, it's not some fancy answer. It's mm. just, you know, the urgency yeah. of the climate crisis, the hugeness, the hugeness, I don't have a better word, uh, of, no, we can, of we can go with hugeness. Thing. Yeah. yeah, the hugeness of yeah. the crisis and the urgency of the crisis mm. is in, should energize everyone. Yeah. Should energize everyone. So, so we, we really, really, um, there's a climate activist on Twitter called Peter Kalmas. He's actually a scientist. He uh, works at the, uh, I think, at the JPL, the, one of the NASA, NASA offshoots. Uh, but on Twitter, he's called the climate human. And he's quite a vocal uh, and a big supporter of Scientists' Rebellion. So Peter Kalmas, the climate human, says this. He says we need a billion climate activists. You know, a billion. We just passed 8 billion people on the planet. Yeah. The 8 billion baby was born about, uh, about two weeks ago. And during the COP, yeah, during the, yeah, COP yeah. the 8 billion human was born, right? We need one in eight people to be a climate activist. Now, people get uh, uh, disengaged with this label of climate uh, or this label of activist, right? Because it has some connotation to some people and it scares them off. Let's just say uh, we need a billion people to be concerned and compassionate enough to care enough to stop this crisis in its tracks. I like to end these asking our guests, what's something that makes you hopeful uh, for the future? You know what makes me hopeful, John, is the fact that I'm not the only one that is doing something about it. There are tens of millions of people. There are tens of millions of people out there that that have their shoulders to the wheel, that are working 24-7, tirelessly to correct the situation. So my hope, and my hope, right, is that it is young people that are at the forefront of this movement and of this reality. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that, you know, the consumerism and materialism of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s is not as prevalent today because young people are asking themselves, where is this jacket that I'm wearing? Where yeah. is it made? Yeah, yeah, where yeah. is it made? This food I'm eating, how is it produced? Right? This thing that I'm learning, is it relevant? Is it true? Does it is it just? And those conversations and questions that those young kids are asking leads me to this conclusion, right? That young people are not the future leaders. Young people are already leaning, leading. Yeah. And I it's can so tell true. you as a, as a person approaching 60 years old, I'm happy to be led by an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old. The climate activists that I have encountered in my journey of the last decade, maybe, 
and that I continue to meet every single day of my activities and that I was privileged to meet at COP27 leads me to the conclusion that with the right resources at their disposal, young people indeed will change our trajectory. Sonia's movement debt for climate goes beyond the loss and damage fund in a big way. Western nations are overwhelmingly responsible for the emissions of greenhouse gases. They racked up their carbon tons during their colonial plundering and continued their rampage on the planet by exploiting the global south through multinational corporations. We've all heard the stab. A hundred multinational corporations are responsible for 71% of global industrial emissions. This fuels a system of overconsumption and waste in privileged communities in North and Western countries, while the global South continues to face destruction at the cost of both the environment and humanity. When former European colonies gained independence and attempted to rebuild their nations, they incurred incredible debt. Their natural resources were, and are still, owned by foreign powers, and the only option afforded to them was to take loans offered by neo-colonial powers like the World Bank and IMF at impossibly high interest rates. Countries that refused these loans were made international parish states, but that's a story for another day. Most countries are still paying back these loans. They finance them by continuing to sell their natural resources like oil, coal, gold, magnesium, or chrome overseas, which are burned or processed in the West, creating more emissions. Sunny's movement, called Debt for Climate, aims to be an answer for this debt trap diplomacy. By canceling the debt of former colonies in the global south, there is potential to leave trillions of dollars in fossil fuel reserves in the ground. Furthermore, freeing these countries from the debt burden prevents Western corporations and governments from using their leverage to further extract natural resources. Debt for climate would be an economic win, an anti-colonial win, an environmental win. If you would like to learn more about Sunny's movement, you can find him by Googling debt for climate. Here he is, one last time. So primarily, I focus all my energy these days on fighting climate justice, and I I wanted to find the vehicle for it. And I think that um, our our global campaign, it's a global South-led campaign called Debt for Climate. The website is debtforclimate.org. The email address is... um, Debt for Climate, info at debtforclimate.org. And you can just search for Debt for Climate and Google it, you'll find our website. So primarily what our campaign is about is one slice of the climate finance crisis and the climate finance conversation is uh, Debt for Climate demands the cancellation of the financial debt of the global south against the against the climate obligations, the climate debt of the global north, the debt that the global north owes the global south for slavery, colonialism, and 400 years of extraction. This notion that we didn't cause it, but we will suffer from it. Mm. We're holding the global north responsible for it. The global north, we are saying through your governments, through your civil society organizations, you have to put pressure on the powers that be, on the World Bank, the IMF, the G7, Mm. and your leaders to promote the cancellation of the debt of the Global South. Cancel the debt, not forgive it, not swap it, but cancel it. Once (laughs) it's cancelled, once it's cancelled, children, once it's cancelled, then we don't have to extract fossil fuels from the ground to earn Mm. revenue 
so we can use the revenue to pay the interest on the debt. Right, right. So technically, if you cancel the debt, it's direct climate action because if our debt is canceled, we can leave trillions of dollars of fossil fuels in the ground where they belong. That's, That's the a- connection between the debt cancellation. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Chalen. This is Adelve, and I'll see you next Friday.
Hi folks, welcome back. This is Chaylin. Today is November 9th, and if humanity is just cruising through a climate crisis, like nothing's happening, and it's Friday, then this is The Delve. On November 20th, the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, well, that's a mouthful, aka 